This is a Strategist, episode 993. My name is Zane Belgy. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, we are back from our road trip. We are back. <laughs> what a road from... trip it was. Oh, what a road trip it was indeed. Carter, live show, Edmonton, Maharaja Banquet Hall. Thank you to the fine folks at the Maharaja. I have to say, they were the only ones to house us when everyone else said no. And yep. Carter, what a fun show it was. 400-ish people, I'd say. I, don't, I have no mm-hmm. idea how many. Um, you know, all white people look the same to me. So it was, I just, uh, uh, stopped counting after, after 12, I think. Well, as you know, I got to work the door and, uh, there was about, I, I, I checked each individual. aggressively volunteered to work the door. Let's be clear. We didn't need anyone at the door. We 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 actually paid people to work the door, but you kind of took that job from them. Well, I asked to pay. The venue was interesting. Um, we asked for certain things that didn't happen. Like, for example, we asked for the bar to be open. It happened, but very, very, very late. We asked for the uh, we asked for someone to be there to take tickets. They, they they weren't there. So we all filled in. Well, I filled in. And, Corey, you were expected to go behind the bar, and you didn't. So it's a little disappointing. Speak, speaking of expectations, I expected exactly what we got, and it was perfect. I just want to say <laughs> it was exactly what we deserved as uh, three white guys uh, wanting to do a podcast at a, at a banquet hall. This is this is exactly the type of service we deserved, and we got um, Masterstroke by the Maharaja Banquet Hall. Thanks to them again. Yeah, well, let me tell you yeah. something. This is not the first time I've had to go to an event at the Maharaja Banquet Hall, and by starting 15 minutes late, we started earlier than any event has ever started at the Maharaja Banquet Hall. Then, then why were you so I, I can uptight? say that. I don't know if you Was can it? say that, Corey. I'm not sure if you're allowed <laughs> to say that. Well, hold on. Hold on. What, okay. what are we implying? Avenger statement. I'm, I'm I'm implying that as the brownest white guy on this podcast, <laughs> that I am allowed to make that statement, and you are not. In fairness, Corey is the second brownest white guy on this podcast, so I hold the title of whitest. Yeah. Thank you, Carter. I really appreciate yeah. it. Because he uh, lives in the Northeast. I just want to say thanks to everyone in Edmonton who came out. Fun group. We did a strategist overtime. You might be wondering if you are one of uh, the folks listening to this podcast, episode 993, where is this amazing recording? Well, Corey, it is behind our Patreon. Um, It's $6 a month to sign up for Patreon. Live show tickets were $30. It is already one-fifth the price. If you're asking me, that's a great deal. The half-life on our content is is, is terrible. It's it's 80% off. 80% off days later. That's a great point. Yeah, Way better than those idiots who showed up and paid $30. (laughs) Thank you to those idiots, but way better. So get that deal. Uh, Carter, anything else to add about the live show before we move on? Uh, There's already been requests to do another one. Corey's actually requested that we don't do another one for about six months. His reasoning was Carter enjoys them too much. So uh, that seems about right. That seems right. So we'll wait for six months or so. Although I'm told there's going to be a leadership. So maybe we do a live show or two or three around the leadership. Corey, any final comments on our live show before we move on? Maybe we can become one of the official um, debates during the UCP leadership contest. What do you think? Carter, do you want to moderate a debate? Oh my God! Do I want to moderate a debate? Can can? Here's what we're gonna do. You're the moderator, and Corey and I will be the assholes in the audience who ask the questions, right? Like the people I, I, who are completely. This, have we just made an official invite? Have we just I, I decided we that this this right now is the official <laughs> invite for yeah, the Brian, strategist podcast UCP leadership debate, moderated by the three of us? Yeah, that's right. Well, mostly you. 
right? Okay. You'll do most yeah. of the work. But yeah, sure. Danielle and Brian, we know you listen to the pod. Uh, you're more than welcome. I think that'll be it for leadership contenders. We're losing them left, right, and center. So, well, well, well let's let's start with our first segment. Our first segment: revisionist history. Oh, guys, the articles are already being written. The ink is being spilled. The vulnerable emotional moments of what happened, how it happened, and frankly, Corey, who's to blame is already being uh, charged in the media. You know, when we recorded the live show on uh, Thursday evening, we still had the open-ended question. We had just solved one of the open-ended questions, i.e. will Jason Kenny stay on as leader? That seems right. to be a yes. We also had another open-ended question. Will Jason Kenny run again in this race? Will he stay as leader? And then because of, as you'd mentioned on the show, Corey, because he wasn't taking on the title of interim leader, he could still run for leader again. Uh, we now know based on the premier's uh, Saturday morning uh, radio show that he's not intending to run again. Corey, so much to talk about in terms of the premier mentioning on his radio show, A, he's not running again. B, he was certainly caught by surprise. C, already some of the UCP uh, longstanding operatives talking about uh, who's to blame here. But let's go one by one. Talk to me about him not running again. What do you make of that uh, on the heels of the live show and on the heels of his announcement the, the day before on that Wednesday? Yeah, so not surprising. He's not going to run again. And I think we said as much at the show. Um, he, the difference between what he could do as leader and interim leader existed, uh, and that was relevant. But if he were going to run the smart move, the proper move would have been to step down as leader. And and Jason Kenny himself called that out on his radio he show. He's, yeah. He said, uh, yeah, if I was going to run, I wouldn't have uh, asked to stay on as leader. And so I, that, you know, the universe makes sense in that context. Um, it would have been a very, I, I mean, I don't know how much time you want me to spend on a thing that's not going to happen. But if he had run for leader of the UCP while being leader of the UCP, that would have settled truly nothing. Because all of the accusations against him, you know, uh, abusing power, using the levers in an inappropriate way, the things that were thrown at him after the 2019 leadership or, uh, you know, 2018, uh, 2017 leadership race would have all been brought out again. So, it, you know, it's not as though he could have said that's that cleared the air. Right. He, if, if that was his thinking, he would have been better off to just stay on as leader and not resign. And so um, obviously um, made the right call there. Carter, did he make the right call? And let me ask you a follow-up question. Do you believe him? Do you believe that he'll stay out as a candidate? Oh, yeah. I absolutely believe he'd stay out as a candidate. I mean, to his point, if you're going to run in the leadership, you can't be the the sitting premier, right? You know, it's just, um, it's too much uh, pressure and people would lose their minds. I think it would actually backfire on Jason yeah. Kenney at this point. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, he has to make a choice and the choice that he's making seems to be very clear. Uh, he's going to be the interim pre- or the premier, not interim, until the leadership is done. This is not unheard of, by the way. I mean, Ed Stelmack stayed. Uh, Ralph Klein stayed. Uh, the only person in recent memory who didn't stay uh, was Alison Redford. And, you know, uh, Dave Hancock stepped into her her seat. You know, I mean. I watched Brian Jean stand out in front of the news cameras and say, this is unheard of in parliamentary tradition. And I'm like, what the fuck are you even talking about? It's not even unheard of in the recent tradition of the, of the progressive conservative, of the conservative government. Yeah. 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 I mean, if your priors are just the last race, you have a point, but if you expand it at all, it's very, it's been very common in Alberta. 
right? Uh, and you, I mean, you can go back further. Literally every PC leader who stepped down stuck around until their replacement was chosen back to the PCs actually getting power in the first place in 1971, except for that one example with Alison Redford. Yeah. Corey, you know, I called this segment revisionist history because we, we see folks, including the current premier, trying to paint a picture of what happened. Um, let's talk about how he says he received the news. Uh, you know, he got 51% or 51.4% to remind people, 34,000 members voted on this. Um, and I'll go into the other part of it, which is, you know, how can I, as premier, have a mandate from over a million people and, and, and you know, just uh, just north of 16,000 people can oust me? He talked about that. But here's what he had to say. When I was given the number by the party president, i.e. the number of, of my vote share, uh, I, about a half hour before I went on stage, I was admittedly surprised because the number did not correspond to what I'd been hearing all around the province. And I want to underline that last yeah. part of it. Uh, Corey, why do you think I'm underlining the last part of it? I, I mean, I, I I have no idea what your own personal reasons for it are. I'll tell you that line stuck out to me, too, because if yeah. you actually believed that, if you actually thought that you had more support province-wide than you got in this vote – Lest we forget, you actually won the vote, and it would have absolutely negated what you said about clearly there's not enough support for me and we need to clear the air on this, right? If Mm -hmm, you believed mm -hmm. that this was somehow not fully reflecting your support, then you just stay on as leader because you won and you're able to do that. Uh, But instead, I think, um, uh, you know, it's probably some combination of the public told the guy who was premier, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, you're you're a great guy, Jason which always happens. People always lie to the yeah, leader. Yeah, they yeah. lie doubly so when you're the premier uh, or his staff misled him in ways big and small, which also happens a lot when you're the leader. Could have been a thing like, yeah, yeah, we went out and we did this poll and we found 60% amongst the members. Well, maybe they're withholding the idea that they told the members it was the premier calling, which would put your thumb on the scale. Maybe they withhold the fact that that only counts the people who didn't tell them to fuck right off on question number one. Uh, before moving on to questions two, three, four, and five, uh, so there's a lot of um, a lot of ways you can be misled within the stream of information that you need to make good strategic decisions. Uh, and one of the things I'm really fascinated about is as this, I mean, we're already in full recrimination mode. I, I read an article where Alan Hallman was like his campaign team let him down. Well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't fucking know. But are we at that point already where we start throwing that shit around? Guess so. But. Seems like uh, it. I'm looking forward to seeing a little bit more behind the scenes to to see where where it all went wrong because we talked a long time about the premier has an advantage that us mere mere analysts and pundits and strategists from the side don't which is all of the inputs that come to you through the party through your campaign which tell you where you should be but they clearly led them astray. Carter, you know, at at the show in Edmonton we talked about how this follows a story arc in some ways, doesn't it? And I think I was pushing you guys pretty hard, almost annoyed that why does it have to follow the story arc? If I'm a leadership candidate right now, why can't I just be like, fuck it, I'm running. This guy's dead. It doesn't matter. I'm running. But you guys said, you know, there's there's this warm blanket to stories we already know, to following a, a path that we're already familiar with. Corey asked the audience um, who watched Friends in the last little bit. Very few people raised their hands. I gave them a better <laughs> reference to ask. But Carter, you know, there is something to be said about the phase of the story arc that we're in right now. And and what explain to me with your past experience, what's the what's the 
if you were to headline this chapter that we're in right now, he's announced he's not going to run. He's doing a bit of revisionist history, trying to contour, uh, trying to, to to rectify, be maybe a little bit vulnerable. I'm going to ask you the same question around the line, but give me a sense more broadly. If you zoom out, what would you call this phase? And what do you expect in the next weeks or months? Because you've seen this movie before. So so tell folks who may have forgotten the plot of this movie, what happens next in, in this scene with our with our now has been protagonist? This is the uh, the redevelopment or recreation of the hero that we once knew, right? So the hero that existed at the beginning uh, fell into a trap. That trap has ultimately consumed the hero, but now the hero is resurrected in memory only because you can't resurrect the hero uh-huh. into the actual position. So the beginning of that happens now. Um, the premier will be... Uh, you know, giving credit for the good decisions and then and the bad decisions will will slowly fade from memory, um, assuming that he doesn't run into a nightmare in the next four to six months. I mean, depending on how long the 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 party decides to make this leadership. But if he falls into a nightmare, then it's going to be um, you know hard to rebuild this this hero narrative that he wants to rebuild. But if he doesn't, he'll be able to to rebuild the hero hero nar- narrative. I mean. People speak more fondly of Peter Lougheed after he'd left than they did while he was still there leaving. And that's the redevelopment structure. The giving over of the reins of control actually becomes part of the narrative. You're giving it over. You're giving it back. Now, um, the same thing happened even with Klein. You know, when he, you know, he was very, you know, unliked, I guess, at the end of his term. But now everybody misremembers Ralph Klein completely. You know, they they misremember Ralph Klein and he's like, but you remember Ralph Klein? He did nothing wrong ever. Well, then why'd you give him 55 percent of the leadership (laughs) review? Just didn't like him anymore. Like, what's the deal? So there's there's a rebuilding of the hero narrative. Carter, explain to me why it happened so quickly. Like, you know, Kenny's dead, but he's already on the next chapter uh of of trying to gel legacy does speed matter here from a communications uh perspective from a strategy perspective like why is this happening so quickly to set the trajectory of something that won't be consumed by the public or perhaps even appreciated if i can say carter by the public for months if not years nature abhors a vacuum right so if you're not putting forward your own narrative then the narrative is being created by someone else or by something else, right? And if you think that Danielle Smith and and uh, Brian Jean aren't going to run against Jason Kenney, um, you're crazy. Like as a, of as course a referendum the, question for the leadership, you mean? In some of ways, of course. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you you, you kind of have to run against you know the previous person. We we ran against Ed Stelmack when Allison Redford wa- ran ran and won. Um, you know this this is part of the pathway. You know, sometimes you can run against the, the previous leader and win. Sometimes you run against the previous leader and lose. Do you want Brian Jean to write your epitaph? That doesn't make any sense to me. So if you don't want it to be Brian Jean writing it, then you best start writing it yourself. Uh, you don't want the media to write it. The media stuff has been, you know, the last week has been what went wrong. Why is Jason Kenny suck? That has been the last week of media. Mm. Um, that's the media that comes immediately following. But you know, there'll be, you know, probably stories if he does his job properly in the next four to six weeks, they will start having stories about, you know, Brian Jean and Danielle Smith will never be able to pull together this party the way that the way that Jason Kenny did, because we'll start to see fractures. 
you know, and whoever else is running will be all, everybody's going to be on one side of this party, not, you know, someone bringing together both sides of this party. Corey, how would you describe the, 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 the wet clay moment we're in right now? What, what would this phase in the movie or this scene in the movie be for you right now? What we're going to see and what we're starting to see over the course of this weekend and perhaps in the days and, and the week ahead? Well, I don't actually agree with Stephen. I think that just time changes people's perceptions of leaders, even if they do nothing really to maintain their their reputation. There are so many examples of leaders, especially in the United States, because, of course, presidencies end and, and they, they all end hard, right? Um, where they leave a total heel and, and eight years later you forget and, and they just get rebranded and redeveloped because you know, time has this thing that – you know, nostalgia is a powerful drug and, and people misremember times to the positive way more. We think about politics being a more noble pursuit when we were kids. We think about the economy being better and more foundational when our parents were young. Right. And and we ignore we ignore shit like the oil embargo in the 70s, which totally roiled everything. Uh, we ignore Bill Clinton, you know, jamming a cigar up carnal places on a fucking intern like this is like we are not in you know we are not in any kind of position to look back on these places positively here so i think just time smooths a lot of this out and you know jason kenny's a relatively young man he's 53 you know before he's before it's all said and done on him there's going to be a turn and people will just be like yeah jason kenny right still forget they'll forget all of the things that drove us nuts and, and were real problems that said uh, by still being there, he does have the opportunity to write his own obituary and he has the opportunity to take advantage of the things that Stephen's saying and go out there and um, and and make the framing as positive for him as possible. What's interesting is you're going to have a couple of other players on the field who, as Stephen pointed out, will probably talk about the Jason Kenny era not being idyllic. And that's awkward when Jason Kenny is right there as well. Still there. Yeah. I mean, Brian Jean is going to run against Jason Kenny. Because uh, because that's who he is and that's what he'll do, but um, that is going to be an interesting one, and I'm not sure it'll do Brian Jean any favors because at a certain point too, I think a lot of the party will say he's already dead, Brian. Enough. Hmm. That that there's no more sort of meat left on that on the boat. Find another lane. Find something that can win you you voters in that sense, or that can actually bring the party together. Do you feel like well, Brian Jean is close to like being seen as a disuniter? in this race that he might be going so hard on Kenny that, that if he doesn't change his tone quickly, that he could be seen as the candidate that was great at getting rid of Kenny, but nothing else. I think yeah, I mean, this is, pivot. Oh, go ahead. Corey, oh, Corey thinks no, he I, just, yeah. I think he'll make the pivot, uh, but that mm. is the risk. I mean, if he just starts talking about all of these things, it will just feel like sour grapes. He's got to try to, and I don't know that he'll be successful because I think the people around Jason Kenny just hate him too much after this last bit. But I think he will probably attempt in his language to discuss that was then we've got to look forward. Here's what I would do as leader. Maybe a bit of soft contrast with how Jason Kenny approached, but I don't think he's going to. Well, let me put it this way. It would be an insane mistake to just run against Jason Kenny for the next uh, however many months this is. Carter, uh, it would I'm, be a mistake. Yeah, I'm going. Oh, I'm. I'm going after Corey. So now I get to say how Corey's 75% wrong. Um, and the 75% <laughs> wrong is around natural brand position. So natural brand position for Brian Jean is the leader of the wild rose party. Uh, that's where he was in, in 2015 when, when, uh, um, people things, still see him that way, Carter. 
I think that they do for sure. And I think that he's mm. very comfortable in that position. This United Conservative Party makes him uncomfortable because uh, the United Conservative Party holds a lot of conservatives that aren't his type of conservative. They are not his people. Um, and that's, I think, the, the real weakness that he has. And I think that people will see that the decisions that he are ma- that he is making uh, fit into this category of um you know, who am I speaking to? It's like Pierre Polyev is very comfortable speaking to his people, but less comfortable speaking to people outside of his, his, his group. And I think that that's going to be the problem for Brian Jean. And I think that it's just too enticing of a target to not attack Jason Kenney. I agree with Corey. The 25% that he's right is that Brian Jean should not attack, uh, should not attack Jason Kenney. But Let's go back, rewind the tape for the last three months. What were we telling Brian Jean? Keep your head down. Don't get in this leadership race. Stop doing what you're doing, right? Stop declaring that you're the next, you know, that you're running for the leadership. This is giving us a comparison to Jason Kenney. And that's the comparison. That's the weakness uh, that, Jer- that Brian Jean's going to bring to this leadership. Uh, Corey, I want to stick it with Carter for a second to close the loop on that line that Jason Kenney gave which was about him being surprised, Carter, 30 minutes before going on stage, that he heard a a lot uh, more different things, a a lot more positive reception to his leadership and his candidacy. Walk me through that from a strategist side. Like, did his team let him down here? Or is that a simple quip put out by by someone also trying to paint a version of history? Like, what what do you think is is the likeliest scenario here? We've talked often, Corey's mentioned even on this show about leaders being lied to, but Add some texture for me. You've been in this position. What do you, what do you think happened here? And you think he was generally caught off guard? Well, of course he was caught off guard. He chose which data to believe, right? So when you're choosing between two sets of data, you know, which one am I going to believe? There's a very real chance you're going to choose the wrong thing. And more likely, um, the data that you have and the data that you're, you know, the, the two data sources are um, blended. So we were seeing polls that saw members of the progressive or the United Conservative Party saying to the to the 60th, 70th percentile, we don't want Jason Kenney here. And then it dropped down to 50th percentile, 55, 60 percent. But it was, you know, we don't want Jason Kenney was always winning. Right. I don't remember a poll that had Jason Kenney actually winning this leadership outcome. So those publicly available pieces of data that we saw said this is a problem. The privately available pieces of data that his team saw said this is bigger, right? We're going to win. Everything's going to be fine. Of the two pieces of data, the piece that was the most correct was he's going to win. He did win. He did not lose. So the public polls Mm. were off by a fairly significant factor. So for Alan Hallman, who I think is an idiot, to say this aloud to news reporters just shows that he wasn't in the game and doesn't play, uh, especially when it comes to these types of things. Because overall, the the the, da- the publicly available data showed that this was he was less likely to win, and therefore my assumption would be his team overperformed, not underperformed. That's interesting, Corey. Do you want to react to that before I move on to a final section? Uh, around what Kenny said. And then I do want to move on to other candidates and future strategy and all that sort of stuff. But react to what Carter said here. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, One of the things that I think we've got to ask ourselves is what reasonably did Jason Kenny think he was going to get? Um, And and Mm. if that was even, let's just say it was 57%. Let's say they thought they were going to get 57%, which would mean they win by 14 points, 57, 43. That's a, that's a thumping, right? Well, that's, 
only really about five, six points off. Like that's, that's it. That's a polling margin of error, especially when you're looking at a group that small, that's that difficult to look at there. And so, uh, there's a lot of reason to believe that maybe this, this machine was actually working a little bit better than perhaps even we've been suggesting or giving credit to as we move along here. Because the reality is, mm. when you look at these numbers and you say, yeah, I believe it's going to be 57% and it comes in at 52%, in anything except politics, that's a that's pretty fucking solid, right? If if you were polling on, uh, you know, brand affinity, if you were if you were looking into attitudes on issue X, Y, or Z, that's a that's a good indicator. And by the way, still on the right side of the 50-50 line, right? So mm. you have accurately predicted that more people are with you than against you. You have just inaccurately predicted the extent, which matters in politics, and it certainly matters in the leadership review. So um, it, recriminations are probably a little much, a little extreme, I think, for the Alan Hallmans of the world to start saying how badly the team let him down, because maybe not quite what Stephen was saying, but my read could very easily be this. The public we knew was massively against Jason Kenney. Polling of party members is always a little dodgy, but the polling that did exist of self-identified conservatives, strongly against Jason Kenney. And Jason Kenney won the leadership. You throw in a couple of other identifying factors like 15,000 people were going to show up in Red Deer, and we all assumed that meant he was in massive trouble. Well, he, he did manage to kind of pull it out, didn't he? Right. Just not to the degree that he thought was necessary in order to hold on to the leadership, and especially when you had all of these various recriminations around the the number of memberships purchased uh, on relatively few credit cards. Carter, tell me what Kenny was trying to do with this line. Um, in the future, we're going to have to consider these things, how you get an electoral mandate of over a million votes, but 16000 people can essentially upend your mandate. What do you think he's trying to do? And do you think it was a strategically sound strategy uh communications tactic or message i should say uh to put out there to maybe cast some doubt perhaps in 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 the minds of those that will now be reading the obituaries and the what happened columns what do you think carter from a strategy i don't think it i don't think it's necessarily a uh to cast any doubt or anything like that i think it's just a, a real question of what the hell are we doing Right, we've moved to grassroots oh, you democracy. Think, you think it was actually genuine? Like you're giving them the credit that you think it was a genuine question about democracy, not like a like a framing or something to to kind of help with the with the revisionist history of his candidacy and, and his time as leader. Four of the 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 four last conservative premiers in the province of Alberta have been undone by their membership and caucuses, and not undone by the voters. Uh, or, or they've not seen a full term. Jim Prentice is the only one that faced the electorate and lost. And I think that we have given far too much responsibility to the members of a party and, and to the caucuses of a party and not enough responsibility to the general population. Now, in, in Great Britain, it's always the caucus. The caucus always holds the key and they can, they can pull mm -hmm. and, and terminate a leadership relatively quickly. And I think that in general terms that's still the situation here but i don't think that jason kenny would have lost would have lost if this was a straight up caucus vote i think too many people would have said you know uh, this is a guy who got us here and this is the guy who i'm going to ride at least for one more election he mm. knows how to campaign he's my guy we never got to that because instead it was a process to go to a membership and the membership is a it's a perversion of democracy, not because it isn't fair, you know, like not because it, their own processes aren't fair, but because they're such a small subset of the overall population. 
I don't think we should have leadership reviews after you win an election. I just don't think it's 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 the proper way of doing things. Um, there's only two possible outcomes. The one outcome is that everybody says this is the best thing since sliced bread, and everybody and the other outcome is they tell you to go fuck yourself. You should have a leadership review after you lose an election. You know, I think that the Joe Clark leadership review was probably the right thing for the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada back in ni- in the 1980s because he'd lost. Right? Is he the guy to take us to the next level when he's lost? I don't think that Jason Kenney can, you know, with when you look back at what Jason Kenney has achieved, like him or loathe him, this is this is not the way to dispense of a leader. Corey, I need your reaction to this. I'm curious. I, I may have skipped a step with Carter saying, was it a good strategy? Maybe explain to me from your terms, what do you think the strategy was with that particular framing that Kenny put out there? A million votes in 2019, 16,000 people upended me. Yeah, so he's very proud of his electoral mandate, and it, it was the largest number of people who had voted for a government uh, in Alberta history to that point, because the population keeps growing, right? Like, so let's just sort of foundationally put it there. It's it's not as though there was anything particularly over the top about that, especially when you compare it to some of Ralph Klein's wins in terms of percents. But in terms of what he said, I'm I'm really of two minds, right? Mm. Um, it definitely to me seems like it's in some ways trying to rehabilitate. Uh, his performance and and thinking about him and his reputation and his legacy. And this goes back to my, if you truly believe that, Jason Kenney, that you had that population of the province of Alberta and you had the voters for conservatives more generally, well, then why not stick around? Because you got enough votes to technically stick around. And it sounds like you're saying you have enough votes to spiritually stick around. Why fucking leave then? Right. So I I think that there's there's a little bit of of self-serving there. Uh, But the two minds, right? One is he's not wrong. There is an asymmetry here, and we've talked about this, and that asymmetry is has been ignored largely out of norms, uh, not because of any kind of uh, you know need to do it, which is you elect a leader one way and you depose a leader a different way. And that's something we need to reconcile. And that's not about the million voters out there, but that is about the fact that a leadership election looks very different than a leadership review, even a leadership review mm. constructed in this fashion, right? Uh, but he's wrong. Uh, because ultimately, he he can say these things, but there are very different times. In 2019, he was relatively popular. His party is who got the votes, not him personally. His, uh, you know, his approval ratings were never that high in the province of Alberta. And when you got to present day, he was really unpopular, right? So, mm. what's the alternative you're suggesting here? Is it really just to ride it out and get cu- and crushed in a general election? There's got to be some sort of mechanism for a political party to say, no, you know what? We want to do something different for the next election. And what's the better alternative? You, you talk about 16,000 voters upending this. That's a huge chunk of the membership. That's way more than the 500 delegates who would normally be choosing a leader's fate. And that's way more than the 32 caucus members that would caucus, if we had the. Yeah. You know, if we had the British system. So doesn't this actually create the most advantageous, biggest pool, the thing closest to that million voters you're talking about without being that million voters? So I, I don't know. I mean, when you get right down to it, he's not saying it because uh, he's not wrong, but he's <laughs> but he's not right either. I guess that's what I would say. Carter, did you want to respond to that last point by by Corey in regards to comparing other mechanisms for changing course as a party? We can leave it as a, as, a, as a deeper dive, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that because it was directly against your point around leadership reviews. 
Well, motivation is totally different. I mean, he, you know, Corey says, well, it's 32 people who would have, have had his leadership aspiration in their hands. Yeah, okay. But those 32 people are, are democratically representative of the of the population because they are the democratically elected representatives in the in in the in the legislature. Those people also have a, a disproportionate amount of skin in the game. Right. You don't just go and uh, turf the leader. I mean, look at Boris Johnson by all stri- you know, by all measures, the guy should be turfed at this stage. But those people who are sitting in his, his caucus haven't decided to let him go yet because they still haven't been able to weigh what's in their best interest. And ultimately, what is in their best interest is in the party's best interest. Parties are especially grassroots parties like the conservatives. Um, they don't necessarily know what's in their best interest. I would argue that both the NDP change their leaders too infrequently and the conservatives change their leaders too frequently because they are both beholden to reactionary groups that are reacting in different ways. So I, I would just simply say, you know, there is a certain strength to having the caucus hold the tr- hold the. The trigger. These are the same people, by the way, that also have the ability to unelect him by forcing an election. Right. There is a tremendous amount of power within that group. So why not just double down on the power that they already have and say to them, listen, you don't want this guy, vote him out or go to an election. But yeah, the, the no. going to the general <laughs> membership is shit. Corey. No, I mean. I, I, I fundamentally disagree that the caucus knows what's in the party's best interests. When you're in the government, maybe at least they hold a blueprint to government if it's a majority government. If we all get reelected, we're government again. So that anxiety, like you've basically defined this is the coalition that will run forward forever. Uh, and the more broadband the caucus, the more that's true. But if the caucus is narrow in interest, you're kind of doomed, right? Especially if that caucus perhaps has decided that they were elected because of their intentions and their political views and not those of the party, which we all know is what people are actually voting on here. And it's, it's easy to kind of look at the extreme example the other way to illustrate the problem with what Stevens talked about there. Imagine you're in opposition and you only have a caucus of 10. And that caucus of 10 is entirely from the city of Edmonton, right? Well. If they are going to be self-interested and they're going to do what's right for them to get reelected, that party will never get outside of the city of Edmonton. Somebody needs to think about these things more broadly, which is why you want to put a party lens on the leader. If your intention is to actually you know, fight for government, you've got to have representation in the areas across the province that allow you to fight for government. So yeah, maybe the caucus is okay if you've got a super broad-based caucus and they're all thinking about these things in terms of like altruism. But the reality is if you're trying to get to the next step, you've got to invite voices in that represent those areas in the next step or else you're fucked. You're just fucked. So you can't leave it just to the caucus, especially if you're in opposition. Carter, but in going a, in to the statement. membership is worse. You, you, you're playing this game where you, you no, know, doesn't need to be. Worse. I mean, well, imagine a, a situation where it was caucus members plus past candidates. Or if it was weighted by riding, so every riding got 100 votes. Or it was weighted by uh, ridings in some sort of crazy fashion, so it was like the the next riding's most likely to flip based on the previous election's results. There are a lot of systems you could pull out here, but I think the idea of leaving it to the people who are already elected, often under the delusion that they were elected because of who they are and not who their party is, is a mistake. I mean, this is exactly what I'm talking about when we start talking about you know, giving the past this veneer and pretending it was so much better than it is because that system's pretty fucked too. Carter, Doug Schweitzer. 
cabinet minister puts out a statement this evening saying, ultimately, I'm not running for leader, and frankly, I'm not running for re-election. This is an individual that was rumored by many to be perhaps uh, one of the contenders for the UCP leadership. Um, Your thoughts on Schweitzer saying he's not running for the party, he's not running for leader, and maybe I'll double-barrel the question, Carter, because why not? You think this is step one of something else, something bigger, uh, another candidate he might be getting behind? What do you think? And uh, what do you think it means for the party? If he's getting behind another, I'll start with the second half first. If he's, if he's getting behind another candidate, he doesn't mention that he's that he's not running in the next election. His power comes from. You mean um, he doesn't, he shouldn't mention if, if like strategically, yeah, that would be a mistake. Strategically, it'd be a huge mistake. If he's going to be getting behind someone, what he does is he, he says, I'm going to, you know, I, I'm not seeking the leadership, but I'm looking forward to someone with the following six attributes who will be seeking the leadership or should be seeking the leadership. And I would be more than willing to support their leadership. I'm dissatisfied with the leadership contenders that we've got to this point. Uh, but instead he said, um, the fuck out of here. So um, good luck with your party as you guys continue on. And I think that that was a, a an interesting choice, obviously, because he's he's you know he is rumored to be someone who could p- participate at the uh, the top end of a leadership, um, and this and he's also seen to be on the other side of Brian Jean and Danielle Smith, um, and him not being there does leave a giant hole uh, for someone to to fill. I don't think it will be someone necessarily new or that we haven't mentioned before. We've mentioned Travis Taves. We've mentioned uh, Rajan Sawney, and we've mentioned Rebecca Schultz. I'm not sure that anybody outside of those three is considering this um, unless, uh, yeah, I think that those are the only other three. Corey, what did you make of that Schweitzer announcement today? Well, you're going to start seeing more of them. You're going to have people, I'm sure, that are going to have to put up or shut up. I'm sure there was conversation at Cabinet just based on Jason Kenney's remarks that if you want to stay in Cabinet, you need to not run for leader. And so there will be declarations that people are not running for leader, right? That's just, mm. that's inevitable. That's going to be happening. And then uh, beyond all of but that. This, this one added he's also not running again, well, which I think, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it starts to then almost demand those next questions, right? Mm. So are are you sticking around? Are you not? Um, and people are going to have to start thinking about what their future is. So expect more like that, especially now that Doug Schweitzer has almost set the precedent that in announcing your leadership ambitions, you also might be announcing your intentions for the next election. Um, it, it's a tough one too, right? Like, because what are your choices there? You could say, I'm going to stick around. I'm very proud. I'm going to be a cabinet minister. I look forward to supporting whoever the next leader is. You might not believe that. Like if if you think there's a chance Brian Jean is going to be the next leader, you might just be like, fuck it. There's, I'm not taking that risk. I'm not going to risk that mm. I have to sit there in Brian Jean's cabinet. And I can't say, uh, well, we'll see how this leadership race goes. Or if I do, all of a sudden I'm creating all sorts of other challenges for myself. Hey, Carter, what's the, does this statement change for someone who doesn't know yet? What's the don't know yet statement? If a, if a mic is put in front of your face, if you're uh, being asked by the media, even some of the names rumored to us today, what do you expect their statements to look like in the next 72 hours? Especially oh. if they're forced with the, with the, I don't, I don't actually know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, it's a standard holding position type of phrase, right? Um, you know, it'd be an honor to run. It's, I, I'm very excited that people are thinking about me. Uh, obviously I would, I would have to, 
um, I have to keep meeting with the people that I serve, right? The most important thing to me are the 78,000 people that I serve in Northeast Calgary. And I'm going to make sure that, that they see this as something that I should be doing. Um, if they do, you know, I, I'll have an announcement soon. This isn't going to be a long-term process, but as of today, I'm unable to, uh, to throw my hat into the particular ring. Um, you know, something boring like that. Like, um, no one is going to say, you know, I'm looking at the field and the field is so fucking weak. I may as well throw my hat in because any idiot could win, uh, which is how I look at the field. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's going to be fascinating, but I do think that the two camps problem is really the thing that's going to drive, uh, the challenges for people, because if you're not seen as someone who can bring together both camps, um, then you're running to be the rump, the leader of the rump. Corey, do you think that's a ballot box question here, bringing together two camps? Or do you think it, it parallels what we see on the federal side, which is purity, ideological mm. purity, a shifting, perhaps ideological purity, but purity I, nonetheless? I what think do you kind of see as the question? Yeah, I think that will be the unspoken question, right? Everybody is going to almost pretend that they take unity for granted. We all agree that we have to stay united to beat the NDP, right? Rah, rah, you know, general applause in, in any kind of area that they're going to do it. They're all going to say that, but that is going to be on people's mind. And it's going to be seen, I think, more as a negative, like this party cannot stay united under Brian Jean. This party cannot stay united under, uh, I don't know, uh, Jason Nixon. That That's what's likely. Right. You're, you're probably going to have a situation where it's seen more as a negative and less as a I am the person who can keep it united. And yeah. uh, and they're not going to want to be making a big show of that. That'll be more the whisper campaign because they themselves will not want to be accused of fomenting dissent and fomenting the idea that the UCP will be anything but you. So uh, it's going to be an interesting leadership race. They're all going to be, uh, you know, it's. It's like so many other leadership races. It'll be a lot of subtext. And and I think yeah. that the subtext here is going to be significant. Carter, talk to me about cabinet endorsements. How important are they going to be? We've we've talked about them holistically in the past and their, and their level of import, depending on the race. Look at this one. With this caucus, with what Corey just mentioned about the U, with the subtext underneath the iceberg about what's written, how important will it be to have cabinet endorsements and let me expand it even broader caucus endorsements how important do you think that's going to be for this particular race that the ucp find themselves in uh in the coming months well, I, th I think they'll be uh important if you're bringing together you know like Cyril turton and and uh drew barnes right like if you're able to bring together two of the 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 poles of of the you know of the movement the left mm -hmm. the right the right the left um, then, then you're being able to show that you can bring together these large groups. But if you're all you're doing is you're taking uh, six MLAs from Calgary and those are your endorser group, um, I think it's going to be a bit of a challenge. So I think, you know, that's that's where the difficulty lies is how do you actually find a way to signal to both both groups? Um, we, you know, I am the leader who can bring you together. And I think that caucus endorsements and also, you know, kind of like conservative star endorsements are, are going to be pretty important. Corey, what's your take on this? Uh, the importance of what the caucus cabinet, uh, reflexive credibility by conservatives. Well, in any leadership race, we start counting endorsements, right? And there'll also be the endorsements from past MLAs, party presidents, and everybody is going to want to show that they've got a broad base of support. 
I think it would be very problematic for Brian Jean if he only had the people who supported him last time, for example, or only people who were former Wild Rose MLAs. So expect to see a big show in his particular case of anybody who was perceived as closer to Jason Kenny, who might say, you know, Brian Jean's the guy who can get us there. This is this is this is who we need to move us forward. He's always been X, Y, Z, I don't know, whatever it is. The endorsement game, though, matters less, generally speaking. It's it's kind of like a a qualifying point in some cases, but not, I, I guess I would say not even. I mean, I think back to the leadership race you ran for Allison Redford, Stephen, and you had the endorsement of what, one MLA at the time? One MLA who lost his nomination race. <laughs> yeah, a fucking popular superstar there. It'll yeah. be a little different. It with... was foreshadowing, Corey, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, well, there's an argument that that's the case because she never had mm. the caucus and then she never had mm-hmm. the caucus, right? But... um this time it might be a little different because of the desire, like I said, that shadow argument about can we stay united as a party? And if it doesn't look like you have any of the MLAs, that might really speak against you. So um, it might matter more this time than it has in the past couple of rounds. But the reality is um, you can win without any nom- any of these uh, you know, MLAs supporting you and you can you can lose with all of them supporting you. So it doesn't it's not everything. That's for sure. Carter, final question for you, and it's a strategy one. As we look into this race going in the in the weeks and the months ahead, can a progressive conservative win this race, Carter? Is it is it is it a bygone era? Is it possible for someone who proudly has worn the light blue PC jersey to say, "I want to unite this party"? Kenny had never really worn that jersey, right? He'd kind of worn the federal conservative one. Came in as a further right candidate arguably has been even further outflanked to the right now with the wild rosers carter can a progressive conservative win and if so sketch out the plan for me how do they how do they win with this existing base and i think part of the answer is selling more memberships of course but first answer first binary question can they win and what what does it look like um yeah i mean i think that a progressive conservative could win. And, and the, the path that I would see going there is actually a number of candidates running. You can't just have um, one progressive conservative candidate against Drew Barnes, uh, you know, Danielle Smith and, and Brian Jean. That won't work. In fact, if the progressive conservatives were going to defeat Jason Kenney, there needed to be Sandra Jansen running against Richard Starkey, running against, or whatever his name was. Is that his name? Richard Starkey? Let's go with that. And, and um, you know, someone from Edmonton. You needed a rural, you needed a Calgary, you needed a, a an Edmonton so that you could collapse all the votes together. That is the trick, is you have to collapse the votes together. So you need mm. you need your Patrick Brown. Right. If you're Jean Charest is executing this example right now, Jean Charest expect hopes to win the, 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 you know, the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership. Well, how does he get there? He only gets there if the if the moderate conservatives, if there's the three that are running um, all fold to him uh, and that, the, the, you know, the, that ultimately the person who's in third place has to be that moderate conservative. So that's what we need to see from. Uh, uh, from, from our, 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 you know, from the candidates and the loss of Doug Schweitzer is a big blow to the progressive conservative side winning. Corey, you're smiling. Give me your take. What, what are you uh, thinking? I mean, Stephen's basically arguing for kamikaze candidates, which, uh, which kills me. It's very funny. 
Well, uh, and very on brand for the Brown. UCP. It's not a it's not a kamikaze candidate if you have a chance to win yourself. Well, and that's that's where you know just going after the other guy isn't being a candidate; it's being a pundit. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, trying. round us out I, on this. I'm not entirely convinced that. Uh, I, I think it helps. I, there is a reality that it's easier to organize in smaller groups up to the first level. And by having many progressive candidates, you can almost tailor your progressive conservative message. So maybe you have one that's more about maybe you have a candidate who's really big on social programs and reinvesting in mm-hmm. education. And another one that's really big on reinvesting in post-secondaries. And another one that's really big about uh, the environmental cause and making sure that there are conservatives who are supporting a carbon price in some way, shape, or form. And then you have another uh, red Tory who is who's actually going to be kind of politically a little bit closer to where everybody is on the right, maybe is from rural Alberta. Uh, but, you know, they they just in general perceive the need for a, a progressive income tax. They don't want to do a flat income tax. But anyways, they cover they cover a lot of bets. And it's pretty easy to see as the ballot roll up goes that some of these people, since they got the ballot anyways, they would have never purchased the membership for candidate X, but they got it for candidate Y and candidate X is kind of close. Well, then they're going to vote for candidate X. And so that can really support the kind of roll up that Stephen Carter is talking about. The alternative is almost this, this clash of civilizations within the party that says, I am the standard bearer of a more moderate conservatism. The real danger of that is mm-hmm. uh, that is the kind of candidacy that can split the party. So in some ways, it's not for me, is that the only way you can win? Because I don't believe having multiple progressive conservative PCs is how the PCs must secure victory. It's what makes it least likely that this party is going to crack in two. And if you've got a bunch of candidates and the coalitions are clear from a distance, but up close get a little bit murky and maybe... Uh, one of them's a good friend with Brian Jean is not attacking them, but it's more likely their votes are going to go to, let's say Doug Schweitzer was still in the race. Well, that that might be a way that you can win and still hold the party together. So the more candidates, I think, the better for the UCP on this one, uh, because it makes it less likely that you're going to have heads up Brian Jean versus, let's just say, Jason Nixon. Let's leave that segment there. Move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, the election going nowhere. Carter, presented by not our sponsor. Uh, I just want to let you know that while we've been having incredibly exciting times here in Alberta, Ontario has not changed, Carter. No one watched their debate. Their debate was tragic and boring. Nonetheless, the polls are, are pretty much stuck in the mud. Uh, it seems like Doug Ford, who probably needs somewhere in the range of 34%, 35% uh, perhaps to get a majority seems to be there. Uh, Carter, you've been following Ontario a bit. Rather than going through the deep dive of, of the, the back and the forth and the blows left and right, let's skip all that. Let's save people that because there really isn't much. Unless I'm asking you for what are any strategy lessons to take out of Ontario? to export out of that this race that you've seen. We talked about one, I think, when we covered Ontario in regards to how do you use COVID as an attack, and we talked about how to package that and pattern it. Anything else you're seeing here if mechanically, strategically, messaging-wise, um, whether it's about how the races are being run, the messages they're being run about, anything at all that you want to highlight as a strategy message that or, or strategy uh, nugget that could be highlighted for another race or, or as a rule uh, to consider, follow, or frankly ignore? Well, I think the big thing is the uh, it is super important to elect a leader that is likable within the population that you're trying to serve. Um, you know, 
Corey has gone on kind of a, 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 at length about how much he dislikes, uh, you know, certain, certain candidates. Uh, yeah. You know, these aren't great <laughs> candidates. Um, you know, Andrea Horvath has been in the, in her role for over a decade. I mean, how is she supposed to uh, tell us how new and, and, and able she is to serve when she's been there and rejected for this many times. I mean, this is one of the situations where the membership should have stood up and said, no, this isn't good enough for us. We expect something better. Mm. Um, and, and Del Duca is just, he's just, you know, I remember back uh, when Ed Stelmack was running for the conservative party or the Alberta Cons- progressive conservative uh, party. And uh, Kevin Taft was running for the liberal the Alberta Liberal Party. And everybody thought this was going to be a breakthrough election for the Liberals because Delmack, you know, progressive conservatives, uh, you know, he was the surprise winner. It was all supposed to be dinning. Um, they had the hangover from, from, from Klein. This is going to be a bad election for the progressive conservatives. And then all of a sudden, um, no one voted. It turned out that no one wanted to vote for Kevin Taft either. They didn't want to vote for Kevin Taft. They didn't want to vote for Ed Stelmack. We had one of the lowest voter turnouts ever. And, uh, you know, Stelmack was able to walk away with a victory. And I think that that's kind of the the election that we're seeing right now. Um, yeah, sure. I think there's a lot of people who look at uh, Ford and say, oh, you know, this isn't the leader that I would choose. Um, but, you know, I don't like these other guys either. So I may not vote or I may not. I mean, I think that that's the number for me that I'm going to be looking at. How many people just chose not to vote rather than to vote for the people that they, that we have, mm. you know, got running for these various positions? Corey, squeeze out a strategy lesson or a piece of strategy or anything you've seen to ignore or discard something that could be extracted and would be noteworthy for for us, our audience, and and for practitioners. What do you think? Anything? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess if I don't want to call it yet because June 2nd hasn't happened yep. and who the hell knows oh, yeah, what kind fine. of turn this election will happen. And but I want to actually talk about that next, but that's good. You mentioned that. Go ahead, Corey. If the next week occurs like the last three weeks and there is very little interest and very little movement, then I think it'll be a good time to remind people of that most standard of all uh, lessons, which is oppositions aren't elected governments are defeated and it seems to be a general attitude in ontario of i don't know i don't care i'm you know i don't love a lot of things i don't hate a lot of things let's just do it all again in four years i i don't i don't have a big dog in this fight and steven's talked a bit about um how that can often manifest in lower turnout but not even necessarily sometimes you just show up and you say you know and you just you toss the one out there suspecting you were going to ask a bit about Ontario today. I did throw out on Twitter. I I basically like, you know, spin me, pitch me. What's the thing that's happened in the Ontario Mm. election? And I think in general, ambivalence came through stronger than most any answer. (laughs) But generally speaking, it's yeah, the opposition never, never found, never found traction in the mud. And I I think that's fundamentally what I believe. Neither of the oppositions gave a reason to vote against the, the government and the government seemed well, by no means inspiring and awesome, just good enough. And like I said, we've got a week to go. Crazy shit can happen. Crazy shit has happened in final weeks of the election. It's not as though this is an insurmountable gap. But the last three weeks being so quiet and the debate changing so little, I mean, that's got to be playing into the, the Ford strategy. Well, the the other is thing a, is... Oh, go ahead, Corey. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll... the... You know, we talk a lot about 
you got to be careful. You lose leads, and and sometimes the the play is not to sit on your lead, but actually to get out there and continue to define your story. But only necessary if your opposition is defining you or attempting to in a way that has any kind of resonance. The Ford, uh, you know, government, the I guess the PCs is a better way to put it because we're during an election, has just gone quiet and is just playing it safe and. Uh, that seems to be enough because the the other two parties can't manage to get their hooks into them in any way. Carter, I need to talk to you about what Corey's just mentioned. One week to go. We've talked about this previously on the pod, right? You read the tea leaves, you read the room. It's fourth and long, Carter. It's fourth and long. You got a week. We've talked about soak time for for things. If you go with something, you have to go with it now. Carter, talk to me about the Hail Mary. Is there such a thing as a Hail Mary that a Del Duca or a Horvath or someone now needs to throw? We've debated this at length around the federal election. Is the context here different that now's the time, whether it's scorched earth negative, whether it's a piece of oppo, whether it's a proposal? First, the binary. Should they do it? And secondly, what what sort of flavor or character do you think it should it should have to, to either break through in the progressive primary. They still seem to be fighting a bit or, or strip down uh, uh, Ford. What do you think on the Hail Mary with a week to go? The Hail Mary with a week to go is super hard to pull off. It is a, you know, we had it happen for us with the, uh, the Lake of fire. And it wasn't even the last week. It was the last, uh, the last 10 days. So this, you know, it, it started to and percolate. We're, we're about last 10 days or so, just to be clear. Yeah. Right? We're looking um, at early yeah. June. Yeah. You're you're in a lot of trouble when you're trying to pitch something in the last ten days, and the truth of the matter is, we'd pitched Lake of Fire like stuff every fucking day of the election. Like this was not something new. What happened was someone found this thing, and it it was uh, you know thrown out there um, by like a blogger, I think, because in the in, back in the day, bloggers mattered, um, and you know that change the race. This is not something that was done by a political party. Um, so you're ne- your hands are now tied. You're, you're in, the, in the will of the gods segment of your election campaign. And that's a very, very challenging place to be um, because the electoral gods, um, you know, they don't tend to like to shake up elections in the last minute. Um, having said that, keep in mind, all hope is not lost. Most voters choose their candidate or their, their, they make their choice 72 hours to 72 seconds before they cast their ballot. We know that statistically. The challenge with this type of thing is that they are more likely to lock in with the, you know, the way that they were behaving before than to change their behavior in the future. And that's, that probably favors Doug Ford more than anything. Um, you know, we're not in the prediction business. Uh, if we were, we'd have even more money in our bank account. Um, <laughs> we, but, we aren't, uh, but you are, Carter, right? So go ahead. Lay yeah, I mean, but we are we are seeing something now where, um, you know, these something's going to have to shift dramatically in the in the coming days, and and who knows, maybe it will, um, but. It's not because of the Ontario Liberal Party, and it's not because of the Ontario NDP. At this stage, if either one of them wins, it's because Doug Ford and his party screwed up, um, not because of something that the opposition parties do. Carter says it's hard to execute. It's hard to land. It's hard to all that sort of stuff. Still worth the shot, Corey? 
still worth doing it still worth throwing it on on fourth and 20 what other choice do you have you got you can punt it yeah what do you think you, they do well the thing about a hail mary is that it in some ways suggests it's like a sports game where it's binary you win or you lose but that's not really how politics works and in you're making the decision as to whether you're going to take a big swing like this you've got to know the bigger the swing, uh, the bigger the opportunity that you're going to stumble around, fall on the ground and look like an absolute ass and perhaps cost yourself a couple of seats as well. So totally uh, for those reasons, it, it is usually better when the Hail Mary, so to speak, comes from from a third party or, or from a little bit of distance from the campaign. Uh, although voters aren't dumb and they can sniff when when something is totally, totally out there. But if there's a Hail Mary to come, I sure hope that it was put into motion a long time ago, uh, because as as Stevens talked about in the 2012 provincial election, uh, there were, there, I don't know, there was a lot of spaghetti thrown at the wall, and much of it did not stick at all. I mean, I remember an ad that was like anonymous, yet super high production values. Carter, maybe you want to comment, maybe you don't, being like, I don't <laughs> normally vote PC, but I'm going to vote PC this time, right? Uh, didn't really happen. That would have been a Nothing good ad to produce. I wish I'd not been involved in that. <laughs> sure. Um, that would have been but- epic. Yeah. You know, nothing, nothing really came of that. There were accusations about extremist views in the Wild Rose that were coming out for weeks, but none of them were really mm. kind of sticking. And then all of a sudden in that last week, there were two. There was a Lake of Fire comment, which Stevens talked about, and there was a CBC debate where Danielle Smith made a comment about climate change, uh, which made her look very outside of the mainstream on that issue as well. And voters recoiled. You know, there was this recoiling from this position that they were at for most of the election. So, um, but, you know, these didn't happen out of nowhere. This was like variants of the hit, you know, putting it out there in the public, sort of seeding some doubt, making people wonder, is this a thing? And then the moment that defined all of this that came through. So you don't just decide, you don't wake up in the last week and say, okay, time to just go nuts. I mean, that's, that's very dangerous for a campaign. And, um, and if there's something to come, it will probably build on things that people already feel or think out there. Uh, and it will just crystallize the moment for voters. We're going to leave that segment there. Moving on to our final segment, our over under at our lightning round, Stephen Carter. It's all about you. Everything is about you. This show is for you. Carter. Is it 10 o'clock one, already? One oh sentence God. of advice to Dougie Ford heading into this final 10 days. What would you tell him if you were whispering in Doug Ford's ear for his final 10 days, seven to 10 day stretch? Go on vacation. The only one who's going to lose this is yeah, yeah. The only one who's going to lose this is you. Stay away from, stay away from microphones. Corey, advice is that is that is that what you would parrot? Is that what you would say? Stay away, stay low key, stay underground. What's your one sentence of advice to Doug Ford, Corey? Yeah, don't stay away, don't stay low key, because then people will talk about you staying away or staying low key. You want to do the absolute minimum that's required to still look like you're showing up for this thing, but no big announcements, no major commentary. Uh, you definitely don't want to step in it by, you know, commenting about other people having COVID or anything like that. Just, you know, steady as she goes for a week. Uh, no news is good news when you're leading in the polls. Corey, I want to ask you about this. You know, the Ontario election, as we've talked about, hasn't produced a lot. But one thing it has produced is another chapter in how political leaders deal with bozo eruptions, with candidates that have committed sins on social media in person in the past. I'll ask you again, as almost a reset from the federal election, overrated or underrated, bozo eruptions as you've seen them play out this election in, in Ontario? 
uh, overrated. And I think every election they will be increasingly overrated because we are becoming so numb to them because every election we're guaranteed a few at this point, right? One of the challenges with living so severely online, as so many of us do, is it creates quite a permanent record, uh, a record that even those who are looking to scrub at different times don't don't do a great job. And imagine being not much younger than us. You're like, I thank God that there wasn't social media when I was in high school. Fuck, if I was sharing every thought in my head then to the world, God, it was bad enough in 2006 when it came out, when I was in theory, a, you know, a fully functioning adult. Um, but as it goes on and we get so used to it and there's just, there's going to be something for everyone and there's going to be embarrassing things for all people. Uh, it's just going to not have the punch that it used to have. And that's probably a good thing. I mean, there's a difference between something that somebody did last year uh, that's a bozo eruption uh, and something that they did 10 years ago. But uh, we're not super calibrated on that right now. I hope a calibration will come. Mm. But we, you know, in a world where it's impossible to forget, we're going to have to figure out how to forgive. And that, that is, uh, that's going to play into these things as we move forward. You know, Carter, you may not have had social media when you were in high school, but what, you know what you do have? Hundreds of hours of, uh, of podcast audio where I'm sure <laughs> you've said something that are, uh, that's going to get us all canceled. Stephen Carter, overrated, underrated. We've seen a new chapter on Bozo Eruptions. Where do they stand? Are overrated or underrated in your mind, sir? They're obviously overrated. I mean, they would have far more impact if they were rated appropriately. Um, because everybody picks up and does the story on them because they're super easy stories to do. And I think that this kind of falls to the feet of the media where the media, um, you know, the media have certain stories that they like to do because they're just easy. And this is one of them. Uh, is it, does it matter if this person had this view or said this thing on Twitter, just because someone's outraged does not mean that it matters. Um, especially when things are taken out of context. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's fair to say I've had my own fair share of interactions with people on Twitter who've lost the Mm. fucking plot, you know, um, they, you know, Ooh, I'm angry with you. So, you know, you should be, you know, you should change your position. Fuck off. Right. And so, you know, these controversies, um, don't have the legs that they once did. And, you know, they're, they're also changing. The same way that, you know, when uh, Bill Clinton first admitted that he, he'd smoked pot uh, but didn't inhale, it wasn't that much longer until, um, you know, he, everybody was saying that they'd smoked pot and did inhale. And now it's not disqualifying. Um, everybody at some point, every at some points, every election is going to have uh, someone who's got a naked picture that floated around online. Corey, you want you want to jump in on this? Yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's a darker side of this too that I think we we can't let go by, and that's that there's a certain brazenness to people who are are feeling much more comfortable having truly abhorrent views out there, whether it be about race or gender. And I don't want to give these individuals a pass, but uh, one of the things that now occurs is is that so many of their supporters are saying, "That's fine, I don't care as long as I get my tax cut, as long as they stick it to the other guys, whatever the case may be." And that's not great. And so whatever system we come up with, we're going to have to find a way. And I don't mean like us as individuals. I mean, society wide, how we adjust to these things, how we digest uh, a meltdown, uh, you know, in high school, uh, getting high while naked at a lake versus uh, race baiting 
six months ago. Like the calibration has to become more specific on that front. But one of the things that we are dealing with right now is that there's just so much out there. People are having trouble divining what any of it means. And the effect of any bozo eruption is reduced as a result. Well, Corey, maybe you'll be able to help me with this, but I'm told that there's these things called thirst traps on TikTok. I'm unfamiliar with the term and haven't seen any of these videos. (laughs) Um, But um, this is a, you know, at some point, these things are going to come back and haunt people. Um, And the fact that they've posted one, should it be disqualifying for public office? Should it be disqualifying for a job? And, you know, these... It, it, you know, those views are being disproportionately punished, whereas views such as, you know, um, you know, literal Nazis are being uh, swept under the table. So hopefully we get yeah. this right. Um, we see virtually no indication that we will uh, because we continue to be our, our ever so wonderful selves. Uh, but at some point, uh, I'm hopeful that we're able to pull it all together. Carter, I'm going to stick with you for our next one. Give Jason Kenny a letter grade on the first draft of his political obituary thus far. You saw it on that radio show. You've seen it dribble out through through some proxies and some others. Carter, put it all together. Give him a letter grade on the first draft of the obituary. Uh, probably a C minus. He's working with really bad material, um, but... At some point, he will be remembered as the person who brought together the conservative movement in Alberta. If it falls Corey, apart right away, it's going to be hard. Corey, give me a letter grade on the first draft on the obituary thus far. I, it's got to be a B or even a, an A minus. He has managed to to put out there um, a story about A, he won. B, he decided to leave anyways for the good of the party. C, lest we forget, united the conservatives. D, has talked about all of the various things that they have gotten done and how he wants to continue to focus on that mandate. And then E, he's he's pitched, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to get involved. I'm looking forward to doing normal things. He said he wants to read more books, connect with friends, mm-hmm, get in shape, mm-hmm. study another language, and finish his college degree. That's a nice bucket list. And he'll be able to do that because he's got a pretty kick-ass pension from his time as a MP. So, um, you know, he, uh, he's managed to, to paint a picture of somebody who's taking it pretty well, left on a high. I, I don't know. I, I can't really fault him. Now, if it, if it all goes to hell and the party falls apart, none of this is going to matter. It's going to be seen just as a bad experiment. But if it manages to hang together, he's doing a pretty good job. Carter, you were you, you you were breathing as if you wanted to jump in. Do well, I was just going to say like. that I think I think that it lends itself to a bad experience experiment more than it lends itself to something that's going to be sustaining. Mm-hmm. Um, these just, you know, the the Conservative Party of Canada may be able to sustain itself, but the the these two groups uh, uh, they don't live well together in the same room in Alberta. Corey, final question for you. You know, uh, much of the national media and the national conversation about Jason Kenney is still about what the hell went wrong. And one of the narratives that um, seems to have dominated is that he lost because he wasn't conservative enough. So as we round out the podcast, give me your reaction or correct this for us. Do a public service because, Corey, we are a public service at the end of the day um, that occasionally – uh, has a select number of people who pay us a minimum $6 a month. But other than that, we're a public service, okay? <laughs> Jason Kenny lost because he wasn't conservative enough. Corey, your take? Uh, maybe. 
because he he started this runaway train, right? That which uh, suggested that one of the reasons why the PCs failed was because they lacked a certain purity. Now, I mean, I think my view, my read of the PCs is a little bit different. They certainly lost any kind of principle, in my opinion, uh, and and drifted about, but. It wasn't necessarily their lack of hardcore right-wing values that cost them the election because, uh, I mean, Albertans, lest we forget, in 2015 elected an NDP government. And then the party, uh, you know, the PCs ended up with, uh, well, only 18 seats. I think they came in second, if I'm not mistaken mm-hmm. there. So it, to me, doesn't suggest that, that Albertans were, saying not right-wing enough. They, they're not right-wing enough, so I better go elect a new Democratic government. Like, that doesn't fucking hang. That doesn't follow. But he validated and he he gave legitimacy to the grievances of those who were in the Wild Rose camp, right? The problem with the previous government is they weren't grassroots enough. They weren't true enough to their conservative values. I'm going to be different. Well, when you let the genie out of the bottle on that one, right? Okay, all of a sudden, everything you do is, is it grassroots enough? And is it conservative enough? And Jason Kenney couldn't pass the purity test he himself set because governing's hard and governing requires you to do things like stay to the middle where the public is. And it requires you to do things like just make a fucking decision and not go back and talk to everybody all of the time about all of these things. And it's really interesting. And there's going to be a lot to dissect about the Jason Kenney days, weeks, years, uh, in in the coming months how's that for a turn of phrase but one of nice, the things yeah. that i'm most interested to to sort of discuss is this this view of jason kenny hotly contested now of and jason kenny has suggested this himself that perhaps he was too lenient of dissent right mm. so a lot of people scoffing at that i 100 percent fucking agree 100 percent agree i think jason kenny was stuck in this weird place where he gave them just enough latitude to make his life miserable but not enough that they would actually see him as a populist. So what do you do? But that's in part because of the situation he set up for himself. Carter, Jason Kenney lost because he wasn't conservative enough. Is that is that an accurate portrayal? It clearly isn't a comprehensive one. And I'm not saying that that has been uh, put put out there as a comprehensive one, but an accurate portrayal as we round out the show, Carter? You're, no, you've got the be- final word. No, because it turns out that you need to do things that are popular with the electorate. The the decisions that he was making were decisions that were 80% supported by the electorate. And he he sided with the 20%. He was on the wrong side of a bunch of issues. He was the one who pushed for the opening, uh, you know, the best summer ever. He was the one who pushed, uh, you know, delayed mask mandates. He's the one who stopped sitting, you know, cities from and municipalities from having their own mask mandates this is a guy who did the unpopular over and over and over and over again and it turns out that when you do the unpopular over and over and over again you become unpopular this is not a guy who who oh i went too far to the left a fucking you know please come on don't insult my intelligence do things that are popular and you become popular uh, and and that is the first rule of a populist premier. How do I know that? What proof point do I have? Doug fucking Ford did things that were popular, even if they weren't right wing or left wing, doesn't give a shit. He just wants to win because winning matters. Corey, start the printing presses. Stephen Carter has minted another poster. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 993 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time.